It's 8pm, Tuesday, April the 23rd, 2019, and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Good evening and you're very welcome to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the programme this evening, I pop out to the award-winning mustard seed in Ballangarry, County Limerick to meet Canadian-born, now New Yorker Bridget Bray, founder of Fair Plate, an event that I attended in New York in March, which places the spotlight on Ireland's food, drink and craft stories. And later in the programme, Lorraine O'Dwyer, storyteller and guide from Gallivan tours which do food and folklore tours shares a blog that she has written about food festivals in ancient Ireland. But before that, if you'd like to get in touch with me here at The Best Possible Taste, you can contact me by emailing s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So I met my first guest tonight in New York in March at an event called Fair Plate, which places the spotlight on Ireland's food, drink and craft stories. Bridget Bray is the founder of Fair Plate and she was in Ireland recently on a research trip. So I met up with her in the award-winning Mustard Seed in Ballangarry, County Limerick, for a catch-up this side of the Atlantic. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Bridget, welcome to Ireland. Thank you. It's great to see you here in the Emerald Isle after we met just a few weeks ago, I suppose it is now, in New York at Fair Plate, which is an event that you've organised for the past few years. Tell us a bit about Fair Plate and how it came about. Sure. Well, I was actually on a visit to Ireland. I was actually under here under the guise of looking at genealogy research and I happened to stop into a local pub, which is now, I would consider my local, Herbert's in Castle Connell. And it was a very straightforward meal that was put in front of me. But what stood out was the quality of the ingredients. And that's what prompted my interest to say, you know, I don't know enough about Irish food and drinks. So I went back to New York and there's a lot of events and a lot of sort of initiatives that are around dance and music and literature. But it seemed fairly silent on Irish food and drink. And so that began my intrigue, my research and my contemplation around launching an event. And I decided that that's what Fair Plate would amount to. Well, before we talk a bit more about Fair Plate in detail, tell us a bit about yourself and your Irish connections. Yes, yeah, so I'm originally from Toronto and I moved to New York 10 years ago. But just before I moved to New York, I'd uncovered that the Irish part of my ancestry hailed from Castle Connell in County Limerick. And so from that point, that began my interest to do the research side of things. And I was already in the food industry at that point. So it kind of then extended into learning a little bit about the food and the food history. And so that's been the majority of my work experiences in the food service space, always in some form of business development marketing, and always having some element or capacity of creating experiences. So to create experiences now that combine Ireland and food mm-hmm. and your family connections then is it kind of like a dream come true is it a dream job it is but it's funny I often say to people that 
not on the food side so much, but certainly on the genealogy front, if someone had said, even as much as 10 years ago, you know, you might find yourself walking in graveyards or looking up information on dead people, I would have said, you've got to be kidding. So it's sort of manifested. I've always had an interest in, and connections into Ireland through friends and past visits, but this sort of rather enhanced and elevated that connection, that desire to find ways to tap into Ireland in some way. And a lot of the the products that you would have at Fair Plate are actually Limerick connected or Limerick based. Yeah, there would be a number of them. I mean, the I guess you could say the remit is there needs to be it needs to be of Ireland or Irish origin. So it needs to have either in entirety or in part ingredients that stem from Ireland. And yes, I've been fortunate to have Limerick representation. Would love to continue seeing more. But yeah, it was great to have. Uh, it was BT Wines that was part of the. First introduction of a Limerick-based brand into Fair Play. And Eman McDonald, and she had her, her book launch, her American book launch, as part of the event. Was that three years ago? Yeah, that was in 2016. And so in that, it was sort of a pairing of Irish food products with a number of her recipes. So it was like bringing a cookbook to life. And it was a really great way to sort of have the guests experience what could be some traditional recipes as well as contemporary recipes highlighting Irish ingredients. What struck me about the event this year is the the combination of the major brands and then the new emerging small producers or drink producers that are coming out of Ireland. Yeah, and I think it's nice to have that mix because all of them have a story to tell and some of them are iconic in that they've, you know, they steep in history that go back centuries and others may be drawing upon that history and have just recently been founded. But being able to sort of represent that collective story, I think, is a way to powerfully communicate in part the Irish food and drink story. And you're always very careful about the venues that you choose to host the Fair Plate event. Yeah, I've I've you know I've always geared at least up until this point that the space has sort of a rustic or artisanal feel to it. You know, I don't want to be in a convention center or something that's ultra ultra modern, but something that somehow able is able to bring people together but also to showcase the different brands at market tables and so it creates this market type of vibe within a space. Tell us then a bit about the people that actually come to the event to see the different food products and drink products that are there and to to taste them. It would be sort of a mix. I mean, predominantly you're looking at a New York region customer base or guest base on the overall. And some will be those that are just curious. They don't have a baseline for what Ireland's food and drink story might mean. But there's a good number that would be within the Irish community and haven't seen much of, you know, a focus on the food and drink. So that's, you know, kind of extends that piece. And then there's always a contingency of those that are Irish that come to the event. So collectively, that's who the group makes up. And I think it's always exciting to have that mix, but also for those that maybe have had no exposure or have a misconception that often is out there around what food and drink might mean. And networking is always hugely important at these events. So if you are a small new drinks producer, you have some of the bigger brands there that you can network with and maybe pick their brains a bit. Absolutely. I think that's a really critical point that you bring up because I know from having spoken to some of the producers and brands that have been there is this might be one of their first forays in any sort of event style. They might come over on prior visits and 
I've just found anecdotally from those that have shared their experiences is that people have come up that have represented either different Irish community groups or different community groups or food groups and have said, hey, listen, you might want to think about ABC in terms of your pursuit in the U.S. market. So it's in some ways a way to showcase brands as it is for them to connect with those that are in the marketplace that can give them that perspective on some of the different sort of nuances that you just need to think about if you're going to grow and launch your business in U.S. I think for new companies, new businesses, especially food producers, they underestimate the size of the U.S. market. And it can be that that's the ultimate goal to get into America because it's like everything you think you've if you if you break America, whether you're a boy band or a fruit product, if you break America, then you've made it. But it is it's actually really hard to get in there. And there's a lot of legislation. Um, Some products, for example, I know you're very frustrated personally that oysters cannot (laughs) be exported from Ireland to the US. So there's a lot of research and careful research has to be done before you try to tackle the market. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, again, there's always that perception, as you say, that not perception, you know, this vision that there is a huge market there and there is and that there's a huge Irish community and there is. But it's a world of hustle. I mean, in addition to any research that you need to undertake, you know, what is your go to market strategy once you set foot with your brand in the US? Are you going to have boots on the ground? Is that going to come on your end? Are you going to look to hire someone, have the partial support? And, you know, the whole notion of being top of mind, top of mind awareness, you know, for a heartbeat, people may remember you, but you have to hustle, you have to knock on the doors, you have to pursue, you have to network, you have to follow up, you have to do that 10 times over. You know, these days, people are constantly hounded on a whole host of things. It's a competitive marketplace. But it goes back to the hustle and conveying the right story about your product and having that quality aspect really come to the forefront. It's really interesting that you use the word hustle. (laughs) It's a word I use a lot. (laughs) I believe in (laughs) as well that you have to do that. Yeah, it's it's not an easy ride. No. And what advice would you give to somebody out there that is making a very unique artisan food product that is Irish that there's there's maybe not that many restrictions in getting it into the country like what advice do you give to them if they say right we want to break America well first of all good to have that plan but then it's also to look at so how are you going to get that story out and I go back to the piece of you know sometimes I will encounter brands that certainly see the volume and the opportunity But what is your commitment to resources on the ground? Because if someone has an inquiry, how responsive can you be? And sometimes it's having that local knowledge of knowing distances and so forth. So I think that's a really important part is who is going to deliver your branding and your message stateside? And the second is, you know, what is your commitment to your messaging? Is your messaging one that is being adapted or is considered of the U.S. market? Because I would say that while I think Irish food and drink products are fantastic, just selling on the Irish or the Ireland aspect is not going to be enough. It's going to be bringing the quality, at least in my opinion, the quality, the uniqueness, the story behind whatever that product is, and then it happens to be Irish. The story is very on trend at the moment. I hear a lot about the story and food producers being told you must tell your story. Why is that so important? Well, I think it's been a shift. I mean, when you think about a lot of the mainstream brands and how there was such a big push for that commercial, that fast food, there's been this resurgence. You know, I sometimes find it interesting when people will talk about 
and not necessarily from Ireland, but they'll talk about, you know, the farm and buying something from the farm. Well, we all know that that existed hundreds of years ago, but people are now really interested in the provenance. And it's also about the uniqueness, what makes it different than anything else that's out there. And sometimes it truly is the story, knowing that the individuals that are behind the brand, maybe it stemmed from generations and generations of learning and production of that particular product, or maybe it's something that draws from that region and is sort of permeated in how it's named or what it looks like. And I think that's what people are fascinated by. Do you find that a lot of small food producers take a lot of their unique selling points for granted and they don't appreciate how unique those selling points are? I think in part, and I think it might be how that gets disseminated, maybe assuming that a unique selling point is in fact a unique selling point in another market. And there sometimes needs to be that that shift. And I would say, you know, as part of any sort of sort of study, you want to take a look at what brands have been successful, whether it's Irish brands or whether it's other brands that are in that similar category. Where are they playing? Where are they present in what sort of supermarkets or specialty stores within the US? Organic is something that I heard a lot mentioned whenever I was in the States, that there is definitely a market there that are very pro-organic food, that it's not something that's readily available in the U.S. Is, is that true? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, if I think about what I would have most commonly heard as a reference for, uh, you know, food here, I'd hear gluten-free here more than I'd hear organic. Organic is almost an assumed, whereas it's not an assumed in North America. And sometimes it comes into question what is organic and what is not. And some of those, I'll say, regulations have shifted a little. So there's maybe a little bit more creative definition of what organic means. But for a long time, and I would still say that's the case, while there has been a somewhat of a shift, organic does tend to be a little bit more of a, an exclusive reach. In other words, it's not the least expensive. So if someone has to make a choice from an economic perspective, it might mean that they are not going down the organic route. And I think that's the same in Ireland as well. Mm -hmm. There is a perception that organic is substantially more expensive than, than not organic which mm -hmm. is unfortunate because mm -hmm. it's not always the case. And obviously you, you do get what you pay for in a lot exactly. of circumstances. Exactly. Your trip now to Ireland at the moment is a research trip um, mm -hmm. because you're going to expand the Fair Plate portfolio of events. So you have something very exciting happening in December. You're going to come back to us then. Yes, always a reason to come back and find an opportunity to connect with Ireland. And yeah, I'm looking to shift Fair Plate more to a platform. So events and experiences and ways to kind of convey the story. But part of that stemmed with, well, how can I now create an experience that would draw a small group? I want to make it a small group experience into Ireland. And so it's a festive retreat that will take place at the beginning of December. And across those days, it'll be a mix of food, heritage, and history. For the past number of years, I've done an event that is focused on genealogy, but in evening events has incorporated elements of food and hospitality. So this just shifts it a little bit further. Very uniquely crafted experiences that are set for small groups that give them a taste of Ireland in an area that I happen to love. I think it's great to see that it is Limerick as opposed to Dublin so mm -hmm. they might fly into Dublin if if that suits their their air route better but you are going to focus most of your trip in and around Limerick city and county yeah well I mean I've uncovered that I think there is so many elements that can be highlighted or I should say so many elements so many experiences and spots to be highlighted and 
yeah, I think there's a lot of airtime given to other regions, rightly so, but I also think there's an opportunity for Limerick. So where we'll be based accommodation-wise, where a good you know number of our dining experiences will be there, but there'll also be some inclusions in other surrounding areas to round it out, but that will be the main focus. For you personally, what are the culinary jewels in the crown for Limerick? Well, that means I have to carve out some versus <laughs> others. Uh, well, it crosses the range. I mean, I, I'd say I'll start, given that my, if you will, recognition of the food and drink story from Ireland began from the very inception, as in the quality of the ingredient, I'll start with the milk market. That is my go-to. I mean, I do need to time my visits to Ireland that there's a Saturday morning out of should I admit how many trips I've made in the last 10 years? There's probably been only two occasions where I could not get to a, the Saturday milk market. So that's definitely top of the list because what I like about it is it really gives that sense of a market. You know, the a brand is not always in the same stall or table. It shifts as opposed to being a fixed structure every single Saturday. So to me, that's something dynamic. It's something that has that market vibe. Then if I was to extend further out, uh, I mean, anywhere who offers me a hot cup of tea. I mean, you can't go wrong in Ireland. So there's that piece. And then I just most recently enjoyed a lovely meal here at, um, at, uh, at, in Ballangari at the Mustard Seed. So that was wonderful to try. And what I really like too, and this would be almost across a lot of the different uh, spots and establishments that I've supported, is that there is the identification of the producers. That's really powerful. I look for that. Another one that I have often frequented is 1826, Adair 1826. 1826, Adair. 1826, Adair. <laughs> How can I mix that up? I've been that so many times. 1826, Adair, yeah. But again, and that execution is, is flawless and it's wonderful. So, you know, there's that whole bridge of anything from a market to some of the cafes to pub fair. I love having um, pub fair in my local which I call as Herbert's and so the cross the range I would say. And I think you've also discovered some hidden gems that the locals might not be very very aware of including the old Irish Ways Museum mm -hmm. in East Limerick. Oh yeah that was a treasure trove. I mean for anyone who just wants this dynamic to see this I don't know if you call it a cornucopia of products but I was taken by you know, there's an original Irish famine pot. There was this seed fiddler, which I have absolutely had a number of people say, what on earth is a seed fiddler? And there's a lot of those items, even... You have to tell me what a seed fiddler is. Oh, seed fiddler, fiddler is. is. Well, hopefully I can describe it the right way. So it, it looks like a fiddle, and it has sort of encatchment bags of seeds. And while I've not physically seen someone use it, um, my understanding is, is like a bow and a fiddle, you would make that motion, and that would deposit the seeds in the field. Now I'm telling you this, I could get into farming if I was doing seed fiddling. Well, maybe for one minute um, but and then there's even packaging that is from old creameries that have been collected and you can see so because I love that marriage of food and food history it's a wonderful place to check out and, and they've lots of non-food yes yeah. things there as well but they have like a little pub there and mm -hmm. that actually all those fixtures and fittings came out of a pub in Newcastle West okay. where I live and I think there's a cobbler shop as well and, and a schoolroom and the, and the cobbler shop came from Newcastle West as well so it really is an amazing treasure trove and it's a private collection it's mm -hmm. not a public funded museum or anything like that I think it's, is it Dennis is the name of the guy that owns it that he just I think it started with a, a tractor an old tractor at home that he restored and it has grown into an amazing warehouse of um, I agree 
of treasures from days gone by and, and it's only getting bigger and better. Yeah, no, I, I would highly recommend it. I mean, I happen to like to source those or go to those places that are off the beaten path and may not be as readily known. But that to me is just a collection of Ireland in so many different ways. And how do you find out about those places? How do they come to your attention? Do you know how many times I'm often asked that question? I don't know if I can necessarily pinpoint it. I am... I remember someone once saying I was like a terrier. Like, I just look at things. I'll see listings. I'll Google. I'll read. I'll be in a new place where I see a brochure that I haven't seen before. I'll talk to locals. I'll get recommendations. And then I have been known to just get in the car and drive. And maybe I'll see a castle off in the distance. And I do admit this. I don't know where exactly it was. But I saw from the road this huge, large you know, obviously old property. And I thought I could find it. It ended up not being successful. But that's part of the adventure that I like to undertake. So that collective way is how I discover the next thing. And that's great that you allow time for kind of freewheeling, so Mm -hmm, to speak, mm -hmm. whenever you're here. And today you're off to County Cork, to Mitchellstown, to Ballinwillen House Farm. Yes. You must be looking forward to that. I am. I've been telling people I'm going to the largest... uh, wild boar deer and goat farm in UK and Ireland and uh, I think I've got a few people intrigued to hear uh, about my experience. Well we look forward to hearing at some stage how you get on there. In the meantime safe driving. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today and if people want to find out about your festive retreat where's the best place for them to go to? I would send them to fairplate.com so f-a-r-e-p-l-a te.com fantastic bridget enjoy the rest of your stay in ireland oh thank you i appreciate being part of this uh, show you're listening to the best possible taste with sharon Newman. Welcome back to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was in the award-winning mustard seed in Ballangarry, County Limerick, to meet Bridget Bray, founder of Fair Plate, which places the spotlight on Ireland's food and drink stories. And my thanks to John Edward Joyce and the team at the Mustard Seed for hosting me to meet Bridget. If you're just tuning in, you might want to catch the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcast. They're available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. Next up, we're going to hear a piece by Lorraine O'Dwyer from Gallivanting Tours. Lorraine is a storyteller and guide and she recently posted a blog on her website about food festivals in ancient Ireland. I really enjoyed reading the piece. So when I heard Lorraine was going to be in Limerick for a visit, I asked her to record it with me. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Food festivals in ancient Ireland. Our Celtic ancestors were farmers, people who depended on the land they lived on for all of their food needs. A bad harvest, a dry summer, or a very wet winter meant an almost certain death for them and their family members. So it will come as no surprise to hear that when it came to worship and religion, Mother Earth was a bit of a big deal. The year was marked with quarterly festivals. 
For each one, food was a deep part of it. Over the centuries, the Catholic Church arrived and many of these old beliefs and traditions remained. The gods the Celts worshipped, called the Tua de Danon, eventually became the fairy people. The meanings behind the traditions became slightly distorted or lost in time, but all the same, many are still cherished and still practiced. So let's take a look at some of these festivals, what they meant and how easy it is to bring a little ancient Irish culture into our busy modern lives. First up is Samhain, the festival of nuts, fruits and berries. We are starting at this point as this was the start of the Celtic wheel of the year. Like the baby in the womb or the seed underground, everything starts in the dark. It was also a time of death. In days past, death was horrifyingly close at hand. For our ancestors, this time was known as a thin time, a time when our world and that of the dead overlapped. This meant that while your dead granny might pop by for a visit, that lad you killed in battle last week might drop by too. So if you were heading out, it's best to disguise your face. Any spirits wandering around will assume you are dead too, and will leave you alone. And if anyone knocks on your door, you better have a treat for them, just in case they try to drag you off to the other world. Food was also left by burning candles near the front door, and after midnight placed outside for anyone hungry passing by. In the weeks running up to the festival, nuts, apples and berries were harvested and preserved for the coming months ahead. Root vegetables like turnips, carrots and later in history the potato were pulled from the ground. The family pig or perhaps an older cow was slaughtered. Sausages made and bacon salted. And if you lived by the coast you might be busy salting and even smoking fish too. The aim was to have as much food formed or foraged as possible. Mushrooms, hazelnuts, crab apples, rowan berries, blackberries, wild garlic and many more items were rooted out from forests and hedgerows. Thin times are great for divination, so you might as well take advantage and throw some clues to a possible future into the mix. Apples too will be used to divine the future. The initials of your future spouse usually, and why not, as your winter stores should be packed with apples after harvesting them over the past few weeks. You can afford to waste a couple on some party games. Dried food and berries were added to dishes like the medieval frumenti, a thick porridge that served as breakfast, lunch and dinner before the potatoes arrived. And of course we cannot forget our famous barmbrack, which arrived at some point in the history, a bread sweetened with honey and rich with dried fruits and infused with the ancient beliefs of the thin time. All around the country, communities gathered to share the bounty, to celebrate the fact they had survived another year, honour their ancestors and most importantly, to feast. Next up was Imbolg, a festival of milk, cheese and butter. St Bridget's Day was, until recent years, a relatively important religious holiday, sadly overshadowed by St Patrick's Day. I say sadly as this day, the 1st of February, has a much longer and more important history associated with it. Celebrated for thousands of years, Imbolg, or In the Belly as it was once known, was a day to celebrate for the cows, the ewes and the goats began to lactate again their pregnant bellies growing by the day. The Irish, all through history, have loved milk. You could almost say our ancestors were obsessed with it. They drank different types of milk at different times of the day, and more again on special occasions. Skimmed milk blended with a little cream, buttermilk, curds mixed with honey and whey, salted butter, butter cakes, butter mixed with wild garlic, pancakes made from curds, a variety of cheeses, soft, hard and even smoked cheeses appear again and again over the centuries. The Irish worshipped the white cow goddess Boan, 
Even to this day, the most fertile valley in Ireland, the Boyne Valley, is named after her. And the Milky Way was once known as the Way of the White Cow. And so it would make sense our ancestors celebrated when fresh milk was readily available again. Ancient rituals involved taking new milk out to the fields and ceremoniously pouring it onto the ground to nourish it. Stories were told of the goddess Boan, feasts of milk-rich food were enjoyed, and as milking was primarily the women's job, it is not so strange perhaps that Bridget became associated with the day over time. St Bridget was once the goddess Breed, and is charged with looking after women, midwifery and fertility, and beer making, all important tools when you're trying to ensure your livestock reproduce. She was also the patron saintess of fishermen, and considering February is supposed to be the best month for catching wild salmon, perhaps this is why. But back to milk. In 1690, one British visitor to Ireland noted that the natives ate and drank milk, quote, above 20 several sorts of ways, and what is strangest for the most part, oh, Jesus, I can't read that. Um, but back to milk. In 1690, one British visitor to Ireland noted that the natives ate and drank milk, quote, above 20 several sorts of ways, and what is strangest for the most part, they love it best when it is sourest, unquote. And it was reported back by the English generals on how they might suppress local rebellions. It was noted that the majority of the population lived all summer long on their cow's milk, so the best way to starve out the enemy would just be kill all the cows. So aside from milk, Imbolc also marked the day that they could start to plant the barley and the oat and pull the boats and fishing nets from their winter storage. All very important food-related events. Moving on to Bialtana, honouring the union of earth and sun. Bialtana was essentially a fire festival, marking the six months that have passed since winter began, and now it is the start of summer. But more importantly, it is also the point when the cattle are brought out to pasture after a long winter, and this meant a series of special blessings were in order to ensure the good health and continued fertility of your herd. Huge ceremonial bonfires were lit, filled with sacred woods. The cattle were then driven between the bonfires to cleanse them. Once the bonfires had burnt down, the ashes were collected and sprinkled on the fields and on other livestock. The largest bonfire was lit at Usnock, which was lit in a huge ceremony. A few miles away on Tara, once they'd spotted the flames in the distance, they would light their own bonfire, and so it spread until every sacred hill in Ireland a bonfire was burning, warming the earth up, welcoming back the sun, and its powers of fertility. Bialtana has long been associated with fairies, and so milk was left outside the kitchen door, along with oat cakes in case they passed by. They were also left outside the animal sheds to ensure the cattle stayed healthy, as a dry cow could be a disaster for any small farm-holding family. This drew from an earlier tradition of leaving offerings of milk and oat cakes out to the ancient gods. Dogda, the god of agriculture, and Govnu, the god of blacksmithing, were both honoured at this event. The blacksmith was an important member of any society, having the magical ability to mould stuff pulled from the earth into tools, weapons and ploughs. And Dagda, a god so fertile that it was said that a certain body part dragged along the ground behind him, it was so long and girthy. Ouch though. In May, after the long winter, the woodlands and hedgerows were bursting with fresh greens to enjoy, many of which have detoxifying properties like dandelions and nettle ideal after a long winter of salted meats and dried fruit. Bialtana was all about the coming harvest, ensuring the cattle, the goats, the pigs are healthy and happy, 
crops are in the ground and the sun is on its way to make sure everything is tall and strong. Finally, we come to Lunasa, the festival of grains. According to the ancient myths, Lunasa started off as a funeral feast to commemorate Teltu, a fertility goddess and the stepmom of Lu, the god of light. She is said to have died of exhaustion after clearing the plains of Ireland for agriculture. This is thought by some to mean the death of summer after the crops have been harvested. Whether it's funeral rites or a harvest blessing, Lunasa, like Samhain, is one of the holidays that is still celebrated in some ways up into modern times. Our ancestors together would climb a mountain or a hillside close to them and get as close to the sun as they could to make an offering out of the first harvested grains. A bull was sacrificed, his blood poured on the ground, again as an offering of thanksgiving. The same bull would then be cooked and served with breads made from the newly harvested grains. Everyone was expected to eat a portion out of respect. A ritual blessing of the bread was held and everyone tucked into the feast. July, despite its warmth, was a hungry month. The crops from last year's harvest are running very low and so Lunasa brings with it the relief of a full belly once more. Young men would act out mock battles, an ancient ritual drama in which the benign Lu battled for control of the crop with a sinister dark druid called Chrome Dove. Lu wants us to reap the season's bounty, whereas his opponent wants it for himself. It might be close, but Lu should always win to great celebrations. Over time, this practice was lost, but the mountain part remained. In my own locality, Mountain Sunday on Mount Leinster was a three-day festival held up until the 1970s, when it finally died off. And the festival of Carmen was held in Wexford Town up until the 1700s. Another festival honouring a dead goddess, Carmen gave her name to the area. The Irish translation of Wexford is Loch Gorman, the Lake of Carmen. Festivities included sports, dancing, matchmaking and huge markets selling off livestock and food. Today, you'll still see a little of this at Puck Fair in Kerry, or the people who climb Croke Patrick, a pilgrimage endured by only the most pious of Christians, unaware that its roots lie in a much older pagan ritual. In the weeks following, coming into September, we start to see the blackberries, the apples and hazelnuts appearing on the trees, which brings the wheel turning back to sound and winter again. Last year, 2018, saw us having a terrible cold and wet winter, and spring. Heavy snowfalls meant the ground was wet and boggy and so planting was late. Those same heavy snowfalls also brought us the great bread shortage of 18. Shells were bare for at least a week, as people panic bought more bread than they would ever normally consume. This was followed by the driest summer in living memory, and all over there were shortages of burgers, sausages and barbecue packs. As I drove my little bus around the golden fields of corn and barley that cover rural Wexford last summer, and in recent days seeing the fields being prepared for sowing, the rich chocolatey brown soil, I can't help but feel very grateful for the farmers and the work that they do. These ancient holidays honour not just the land, but the agricultural work too. We take our food for granted, shops filled with food from all over the world, restaurants, cafes and takeaways line our streets. But we forget how quickly that can be taken away from us. Climate change is a real and serious threat, whether it's man-made or a natural progression for a living planet is an argument for another day. Fact is, we are witnessing just how precarious our existence is. Reusable coffee cups, water bottles, recycling electric cars, organic farming, running paperless businesses, all growing in popularity, as too are the festivals I've just mentioned. All over Ireland, farming communities are bringing them back. 
here in Wexford, Loftus Hall drove cattle between bonfires, while Fanine the blacksmith demonstrated how farming tools were made in the past, alongside a barbecue of beef at their Bialtana Fire Festival. At Hook Lighthouse, Senator Grace O'Sullivan was invited to give a talk on eco-sustainability, along with talks about growing vegetables and herbalism, and a ritual celebration of Bridget at their Imbolc celebration. And in Enniscorthy, we held a Lunasa banquet, including a blessing of the bread, as a showcase event for the Rocking Food Festival, a festival with over 80 local and artisan food producers selling their produce, plus giving talks and demonstrations, and similar events are planned for this year too. So if we want to live more ethically and in harmony with the world around us, perhaps recognising and celebrating these ancient holidays again is a good way to start bringing with them an awareness of how important ethical, free-range and organic farming is, not just for us, but to Mother Earth too. And if you're questioning why we lost these wonderful festivals, well, that's the question for the next blog. My name is Lorraine O'Dwyer. I run Gallivanting Tours, food and folklore tours, www.gallivantingtours.ie. possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard Lorraine O'Dwyer from Gallivanting Tours reciting her blog post Food Festivals in Ancient Ireland and as Lorraine said at the end of the piece there, visit gallivantingtours.ie to enjoy more stories by Lorraine and if you're a Game of Thrones fan and it's in full swing now on Sky, you'll be interested in Lorraine's post focusing on it. If you missed that and you're just tuning in now, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And before we finish up tonight, if you are a food or drink producer, the Blossnairn Irish Food Awards are open for entries and you have one week to take advantage of the early bird fee, which ends next Tuesday, April the 30th. Visit irishfoodawards.com. And don't forget that the West Waterford Festival of Food is on this weekend, Friday the 26th of April until Sunday the 28th of April. And we spoke to CEO Caroline a few weeks ago about the great programme of events and if you visit westwaterfordfestivaloffood.com you'll find all the details there. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks for tuning in and to my guests Bridget Bray and Lorraine O'Dwyer. I'll be back next week so until then, bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste email sharon at sharonnoonan.com 
or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organization. Bon appétit.